Welcome to the NIHR Dementia Researcher podcast, brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk, in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society, supporting early career dementia researchers across the world. Hello, and thank you for listening to the Dementia Researcher podcast. And welcome to our fifth and final show of the week, where we've been summarising all of our narrated blogs from 2020. Today we have six more blogs from some fantastic contributors you'll have heard from already and some new ones as well who are going to be writing for us throughout 2021. Our first blog for today comes from Dr Anna Volkmer who is a speech and language therapy researcher from University College London discussing conversation analysis on what it can tell us about dementia and how it can really make a difference and not just be a tool for research. A little bit of conversation analysis can tell us a great deal about dementia. Conversation analysis, or CA, is an approach that examines how mutual understanding is achieved, or not, in naturally occurring conversations. The godfathers of CA, Sachs, Shigloff and Jefferson, often analysed audio recordings of telephone conversations. They transcribed the conversations and examined how turns were constructed. They observe naturally occurring breakdowns and methods of repair that are used to resolve these. Despite conversations appearing messy, it turns out that they are extremely systematic and these systems often traverse language barriers. In fact, no matter whether speaking in Chinese or German, overlapping speech, often described as an interruption, is generally avoided with less familiar speakers and accepted with more familiar speakers. So how can CA help in dementia? It is often in the context of conversation that the first signs of dementia may be observed. It may be the topic itself, itself, perhaps inappropriate, tangential or difficulties in the completion of the topic, for example. Incomplete questions and answer sequences, an extended word searching behaviour or difficulties resolving the breakdown that has occurred. This underlines conversation as a diagnostic resource, a non-invasive and plentiful pool that can provide a large data set with very little effort. Indeed, it is not uncommon that a health professional will have a sneaking suspicion about an underlying diagnosis just after a few moments of chatter. It is not uncommon that people with dementia will say they manage well in conversations with certain people, for example, friends, partners or family members, and less well with others, certain other friends or family members or strangers even. In fact, we've all probably experienced this a little. We may have walked away from conversations and felt that they went particularly well, or another conversation may have gone terribly, and we are unsure what exactly happened. CA is a great way to understand exactly what happened, to identify how people collaborated to complete a turn or solve a breakdown, also known as a facilitator. That said, it can also highlight where people made things harder, such as asking certain types of questions that make it really difficult for the person with dementia to answer, or extending turns artificially and unnecessarily, also known as barriers. These can really impede the flow of conversation. This last paragraph highlights the applied value of CA research. By this I mean how this type of analysis can inform care. CA has informed a number of staff training and education programmes. 
One recent example of this revealed that when staff use ambiguous language to attempt to finish an interaction, then people with dementia are often unable to follow these prompts. Secondly, CA can inform interventions for people with dementia and their families and friends working on conversations. The literature here often reveals that family members are more likely to use artificial tests or teaching type questions in routine conversation, which often cause frustration for both. This may be done subconsciously and with the best of intentions, yet once explored and discussed are often better avoided to relieve frustration and enhance relationships. In summary, if you have not previously heard of or tried CA, please give it a chance. I'm a big fan and I feel that this could be the top of the iceberg and that CA could offer so much more for dementia. Imagine improving someone's relationship and quality of life to the point where it made care easier. This is what I believe CA can offer. I love Anna's blogs. And if you've ever met her in real life, you would know she's the most enthusiastic, kind and thoughtful person you could meet. She's always got real love for the subject. And I think that comes through in her blogs and in the podcast she's hosted for us before. If you haven't had a listen, do trawl back through our back catalogue and look out for those hosted by Anna. Our next blog comes from Dr. Sam Moxon. I met Sam earlier this year when he very kindly agreed to present for us in one of our webinars. He is a 3D bioprinting expert from the University of Manchester. In his first blog, he discusses the challenges of looking for a job during the pandemic. Hi everyone, I'm Sam Moxon and I'll be writing a monthly blog here on the Dementia Research website. I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Manchester and I specialise in using techniques like 3D bioprinting to try and engineer better models of the human brain. I'll be writing about recent breakthroughs, my experiences at the front line of research and be handing out advice where needed. I hope you enjoy my contributions. In March, we received an update via our departmental email chain. The message was very simple. Full lockdown, everyone must go home. What followed was a mad scramble to pack everything down before the university closed. Reagents had to be safely disposed of, experiments had to be stopped, and cells had to be quickly extracted and frozen. We were able to preserve some of our work, but some researchers lost up to six months' worth of experiments in just four hours. This was a situation like none seen by our institute, and the university had to respond quickly and definitively. At the time, we assumed that this would last a few weeks, maybe a month, but it would turn out to be four months before any of us were able to step back into the lab. A week later, the rest of the country followed suit, and as we all entered full national lockdown, many industries froze to a halt, and the jobs market shrunk rapidly. In particular, universities across the country froze all non-essential recruitment as they navigated the uncertainties of how this pandemic would impact student intake for the coming academic year. It quickly became the worst possible time to need to find a job, and it just so happened to be exactly what I needed to do. The pandemic really exposed how fragile the academic market can be. The majority of researchers who are actively working in labs across the country are committed to temporary contracts of between one and four years. And at the end of these contracts, they have to go out and seek the next one. This process is often heavily reliant on charitable funding bodies like Alzheimer's Research UK and Cancer Research UK, to name a few, to provide us with the capital we need to fund our work and sustain our families. The situation has to be navigated by researchers for the majority of their early career, and job security only really arrives when they're at a stage when they can apply for permanent tenured positions. 
In a normal year, an average job search will return multiple viable options for a researcher when they're looking for that next position. This year, however, browsing the job market felt a bit like trying to find a toilet roll at Costco in mid-March. Charities had to respond to the uncertainty and loss of income just like any other organisation. And unfortunately, this led to either a delay or even a complete retraction of funding opportunities. Less funding subsequently led to fewer research projects being funded. As a result, many researchers whose contracts have expired this year are still desperately searching for that next position. The job market still hasn't recovered and unless you are the right type of scientist, i.e. you know enough about viruses to research COVID, suitable positions are rare and extremely competitive, as are funding opportunities. It is undoubtedly going to have a significant effect on the wider scientific community. Resources are mostly focused on one thing at the moment. It is understandable, but it does not negate the fact that fields like dementia research are now trying to push forward with less funding and, resultantly, fewer gifted and dedicated scientists than we likely had this time last year. It is a quite daunting thought, but is it important now, more than ever, to try and spin this into a positive? The one thing we have seen this year is just how much the scientific community can achieve when it comes together in a global effort. The virus hit us hard in spring, but now, a mere eight months later, we are presented with multiple possible vaccines and a wealth of information about SARS-CoV-2. In addition to that, a healthy student intake has massively opened up the job market again. Many of the researchers who were struggling to find a new role could find themselves back in the lab in the not-too-distant future. This year is undoubtedly going to push back progress in fields like dementia research to some extent, but I am hopeful that the strength of our scientific community will be enough to minimise our efforts to beat the diseases that cause dementia. It's going to be tougher and more competitive than before to conduct our research, but I'm confident we will recover. There are enough talented and dedicated scientists out there to make a real difference. We must now focus on doing our utmost to give them the opportunity to bring their talents and insight back into our labs. Sam's work really is fascinating. I really would encourage you to go to our YouTube channel and seek out his presentation he delivered. It's really interesting work. Our next blog today comes from Dr. Emily Oliver. As you'll recall from blogs earlier in this week, Emily is a nurse from Southampton who completed her PhD, I think, around a year ago. And in this blog, she discusses some of the challenges of deciding what to do once you finish your PhD as a clinical academic. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the third instalment of my blog. We are fast approaching Christmas, and this time of year always makes me feel quite reflective. Not only is it coming towards the end of the year and therefore prompts me to look back, but this year also marks the year since I graduated from my PhD, so the reflection is even more poignant. Whilst reflecting one evening during this second lockdown, I felt a pang of sadness in that I hadn't led or even really participated in any research studies since graduating. This made me think about the reality of clinical academic roles following the completion of a clinical academic pathway, and I thought I would share this with you. The push to establish clinical academic careers in nursing has increased over recent years and there is a growing body of evidence that suggests that clinical academic roles create both better healthcare professionals and improved healthcare environments. Research active healthcare organisations provide high quality of care, increased treatment options and improved clinical outcomes and as highlighted by the National Institute of Health Research, researchers immersed in clinical settings are able to identify where the research is needed and apply these findings in day-to-day practice. What could be better, I hear you ask? Well, where are these roles and how accessible are they is what I ask. Let's paint a picture. I spent four years sat in a role that was the epitome of a clinical academic role. I worked within an acute hospital and was conducting my own research in an acute hospital. 
I use my knowledge of practice to inform what I researched and use the findings of my research to inform my practice. The dream. I passed my viva and graduated thinking this would be my career from now on, submerged in clinical practice but leading on research projects that made a real difference on the ground. How naive I was. Now, this is just a reflection of my own experience and if you have managed to find a role that genuinely incorporates both clinical work and academic work, then I am in awe of you. But for me, and a lot of my fellow clinical academic colleagues, this just hasn't been our reality. Many of us found ourselves going one way or the other. Some went into research fellow posts and were removed from clinical practice. Some went back to clinical practice, never to submit an ethics application again. Some of us, me included, found roles that sat outside of both camps, but allowed us to dip a toe in both when we could. And some found part-time roles in both, trying to juggle two separate organisations with two different priorities. Not ideal. Now, I know there are postdoctoral pathways out there that provide opportunities to continue in clinical academic careers. The NIHR Advanced Fellowship or the Consultant Nurse Pathway, as examples. But these are often a few and far between, and the reality is when you're submitting your thesis, it's very difficult to be applying for another fellowship, meaning that the timing doesn't always work out in terms of funding. The added complexity is that we all have lives outside of work. Rent, mortgages to pay, mouths to feed, maternity, paternity and sickness pay needed. And these fellowships just don't always cut the mustard. So, as I reflect on the year just gone and think of the year ahead, my aim is to find and promote roles that allow the best of both worlds. Both healthcare organisations and academia need clinical academic roles to ensure that evidence-based practice is being implemented and to ensure that the research being conducted is relevant and meaningful. I believe that these roles should not be bitty in that you dither in some research where possible whilst predominantly working clinically or vice versa, but where clinical work and research harmonise to allow practitioners to conduct research that will improve how they practice. The current evidence base is saturated with literature discussing the positive implications that derive from clinical academic professionals. So my question for 2021 is, what can we do to make these roles a reality? I would be interested to hear your experience and delighted to hear of the roles in which the clinical academic dream is already in place. See you next time. It's a really difficult and important subject. Uh, if you have any thoughts on what to do once you've finished your academic doctorate, please do drop a comment below and let us know what happened to you after you'd finished. Our next blog comes back to a new contributor, Beth Eyre. I came across Beth on Instagram. She's one of these fantastic people who this year have decided to communicate their science to the public through the form of Instagram with some amazing video clips and, and pictures and messages there. Beth is, I think, a second year PhD student at Sheffield University. Uh, I hope you enjoy her introduction and please do register on our website using the register button on our homepage to make sure you never miss any of Beth's blogs that she'll be writing for us each month over the coming year. I sit here now trying to go through the last 10 years in my head and process how I actually got here, a second year PhD student researching Alzheimer's disease. It's safe to say that my 15 year old self would certainly not recognise the person I am today. I find it difficult to pinpoint when I realised I actually wanted a career in science. At school, no one really talked about what a career in science would actually look like, but I do remember that I always loved science. I remember in year nine being the only person in my class to be awarded the Gold Olympiad Award, which everyone, including myself, was quite shocked at. I've always enjoyed thinking about how things work, especially our bodies and brains. At school, I was intrigued by human behaviour and how the brain affects this behaviour, so I took psychology at both GCSE and A-level. 
at sixth form, I actually wanted to study medicine, but unfortunately I didn't get the A in chemistry that I needed to apply. So I decided to apply for psychology instead, which I already knew I loved. At this point in time, I had no idea that I could have a job as an actual scientist. I went to the University of Leeds, where I got to study in Australia for a year. My time at Leeds gave me a fantastic overview of many different aspects of psychology, but my favourite was anything with a neuroscience spin on it. By the end of my degree, I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Psychology is such a broad subject, so my interests at this point were quite varied. All I knew is that I loved studying and learning about how the brain works. But instead of rushing into something, I decided to take a year out of education. I worked as a boating instructor at a camp in America, which I would definitely recommend, and then as a teaching assistant, working with young people with special educational needs. I loved the job, but I really missed studying and learning about the brain. So I decided it was time to go back to university. I found an amazing master's at the University of Sheffield, Cognitive Neuroscience and Human Neuroimaging. During my master's, I got to complete a brain dissection module. I think it was getting to hold a human brain in my hands that really solidified that I wanted a job where I got to work and research the brain. The master's was really hard, but also so rewarding. I found that the experience gave me confidence and helped me realise that I wanted a career in academia. So I started applying for PhDs, and specifically ones which involved neurodegeneration. I decided I wanted to complete a PhD related to neurodegeneration because since finishing up my undergraduate degree, I'd watched a family member change. It started with repeating questions, forgetting names, confusion, and over time these symptoms got worse and new ones developed. Unfortunately, this family member had Alzheimer's disease. The first couple of PhDs I applied for, I didn't actually make it to interview, but an amazing position came up at Sheffield investigating neurovascular function in Alzheimer's disease. I applied, got an interview and was awarded the position. So two years later, here I am, a second year PhD student. So my research investigates neurovascular coupling. This is the relationship between a neuron firing and increased blood flow to that same brain region in preclinical models of Alzheimer's disease. Neurovascular coupling is known to be impaired in Alzheimer's disease and it could be a potential biomarker for the disease. So it's important that we learn more about it. And so to investigate this, I look at how amylobutaplax may affect neural activity and blood oxygenation within the brain. During my PhD, I'm also planning to investigate how Alzheimer's pathology may be impacted by cardiovascular disease due to atherosclerosis, as many individuals with Alzheimer's disease also possess vascular risk factors and or vascular disorders. I think it's really important that scientists communicate their research to people. Science can be a bit of a bubble, and I think it's important for us all to get out of our bubble and explain how our research affects wider society. Luckily, I've always loved chatting to people and telling them about science. So one thing I'm hoping to do throughout my PhD is communicate my research to the general public and to other scientists. So during lockdown, I actually created an Instagram account, Beth's Brain Bites, if anyone's interested, <laughs> where I share posts about my day-to-day -day life as a PhD student, information about the brain and tips about PhD study. And now I'm hoping to communicate more about me and my research through this blog. So what do I actually do in my non-academic life? I'm really passionate actually about showing people that you can have a good work-life balance when doing a PhD. So I'm really strict with when I do and don't do work. I try my best not to work in the evenings or on weekends. I try and keep this time for me and my hobbies. I've recently started going to pole classes. It's a great new skill and it's a fun way to get fit and take my mind off my PhD. I also love hiking in the Peak District and going to fitness classes. So what's actually next for me? As I'm in my second year of my PhD, it's actually quite difficult to think about my next step as all I can really think about right now are my experiments. But I've not been put off academia yet. I would love to stay in the dementia field and apply for a postdoc and then hopefully a fellowship. It's definitely a field I could see myself in for a long time. Being a dementia researcher right now is exciting as there are so many new discoveries. 
And I am really hopeful that in my lifetime, we will see some successful therapies and we will help stop the diseases that cause dementia in their tracks. You can find Beth's profile and bio on our website, um, along with a link to her Instagram page, which I know I'm sure she would welcome any of our listeners to go give her a follow there and uh, check out some of the work she's doing. It's really interesting and fascinating. Our next blog, we go back to Clarissa Glebel. You'll recall we've met Clarissa a few times over the course of the week. She's a postdoctoral researcher in Liverpool. And in December, she organised a fantastic virtual conference for members of the public and researchers to discuss their important research that's been happening during COVID. Uh, in this blog, she discusses how to plan and host a virtual event. Um, there's some great tips in here that I hope you'll find useful. Planning and hosting a virtual conference. COVID-19 has caused all sorts of adjustments in academia, from collecting data remotely, telephone interviews and online surveys, to hosting seminars as online webinars. Last September, 2019, I set up the Liverpool Dimension Aging Research Forum, which is bringing together academics, clinicians, service providers, local authorities, and people affected by dementia to share, develop, and discuss research openly and publicly. Whilst switching at some point from seminars to webinars, which turns out to be an added bonus as it can reach so many more people, I also decided to move our second annual conference to an online platform. You think that might be easier than a face-to-face -face conference. In some ways it is, as you don't have to sort out the venue, refreshments, taking registrations, sending out directions, making sure it's easily accessible for everyone, and so on. But in the back of your mind is that little voice saying, it's not interesting online, people can just decide to leave the Zoom conference. So how do you host a virtual conference with multiple speakers, 100 plus attendees, Q&A sessions, breakout rooms, comfort breaks, event pages, email reminders, follow-up emails and more? Let's start by contacting the potential speakers. Luckily, I've known the majority of the speakers for some time, so that was easier. On top of getting some great presenters and talks, including Craig Murray from University of Liverpool on eye movement and dementia, Kim Ward from the Brain Charity on her singing and dancing groups for dementia, and a carer who has cared for his mother with Alzheimer's disease dementia during lockdown. To name a few, we also had the added bonus of having Grace Meadows from the National Music for Dementia making some time and sharing their work. Speaker sorted, Time to draft an agenda that is not too long, as you don't want to lose people's interest by having too much talking and no engagement, which can be difficult anyways in virtual events. So speakers had to be kept to quite tight time slots, and it's the organizer's task to keep to that agenda, which can be tricky, especially when you get lots of great questions from the audience. It was important to include a little lunch break after plenty of very talks, to have a Q&A after each talk, and to have 30-minute breakout rooms towards the end. It's a more relaxed environment where people can express their thoughts and chat amongst themselves. Once you've got confirmation of who is speaking, the date and time and the rough agenda, then it's time for that important registration link. Eventbrite works a treat, as I'm sure we're all too familiar with now. Make sure to send out the link to the Zoom or Teams event to all attendees on time, and then it's the actual event. That seemed to have come around much quicker than anticipated. On the day, we had around 125 attendees from different professional backgrounds and many carers joining us. 
The nice thing is, you're actively listening to new presentations, work and research you might not have fully known about before. Not everyone was able to make the event, though, so we will be uploading the full conference on our ARC Northwest Coast YouTube channel this week. What is it like to host a virtual conference, then? With our forum enabling research to be shared freely and publicly, hosting online events allows a much wider reach to people across the globe, but also beyond the Liverpool region. I am mindful of the downside in that many older people might not have access to the internet or computer, although they might be really interested in hearing about this. Once the vaccines will be reducing the spread of the virus and research events can be held in person again, we will hopefully be able to host these conferences and seminars both face-to-face -face and live streaming. Best of both? So now I've got some tips for setting up and hosting a virtual conference. First, approach people early and plan ahead. Book in a date that works for all presenters several months in advance and send out monthly reminder emails. Get presenters involved in the planning. Create and publicize an Eventbrite link around three months in advance. Share, share and share info about your event with people via social media and targetedly by email or in person or in meetings. Make people excited about your event, highlight specific presenters and topics. Keep a look on the registration numbers. Have a pre-event pilot run-through to discuss with presenters any issues. Get all the slides ahead of the presentation and conference in case a presenter can't share their screen. Send out the link to the Zoom or Teams or other channel where the conference is hosted twice in advance to all registered attendees. On the day, get dressed and don't wear PJs, have a cup of tea ready and enjoy. And don't forget to use social media throughout the event and plan a few questions for each presenter in case the audience takes a while to post questions. And then after the event, try and get the conference uploaded onto YouTube and share with attendees. Clarissa has written some fantastic blogs for us over the past year, and we're really grateful for all the contributions she's made. I know that she's planning some more events in the coming year, so if you want to be alerted to those and jobs, events and funding opportunities, our website now has the option for you to subscribe not only to our weekly bulletins, but also for alerts on specific sections as well. So do visit our website at dementiaresearcher.nihr.ac.uk to subscribe to some of those alerts. Our final blog for today, and our final blog from 2020, comes from Morgan Daniel. You'll recall Morgan is an MSc student at University College London who's been sharing her journey as she moved from Glasgow down to London and started the course on neuroscience on Queen's Square. In this blog, she addresses a really difficult subject around imposter syndrome and perfectionism, something that I know many scientists face. She discusses how this has affected her with some advice on how others might try to cope with this as well. I hope you enjoy listening. Hi everyone. I thought that now might be a good time to discuss one of the major issues that I faced in starting my master's degree, imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome is often associated with feelings of self-doubt and lack of belief in one's abilities. It was first described in the 70s and often occurs when someone feels they do not have the necessary skills or attributes needed for, in most cases, a particular job or degree. It seems that imposter syndrome is popular amongst graduate students, and I know from personal experience, as well as speaking to friends, that it's probably more common than people think. 
I've struggled with this issue since receiving an offer to study at UCL. UCL is often thought to be one of the world's top universities in neuroscience teaching and research, and I knew that the application process was competitive. Queen's Square is a world-leading centre of neuroscience and neurology research, and knowing that I would be learning from some of the best researchers in the field at such a historic institution, I felt that I wasn't deserving of the place I was offered. Even after meeting my offer and successfully graduating during a global pandemic, I was worried that I would not cope with the high standards I expected I would face, and I was worried that I would struggle to keep up with my peers. I was never a straight-A student, and to be honest, I often considered myself to be an average student at best. I am, however, a bit of a perfectionist, and I therefore struggle if I don't meet my very high expectations of myself. I think this pressure to do well therefore made me feel like a bit of a fraud when I was applying to postgraduate degrees. While my undergraduate degree no doubt prepared me for studying at master's level, I was always concerned that I would drown under the workload and that I would need more support than was on offer. I was terrified that my knowledge of statistics wasn't up to scratch and that I would struggle to keep up with the clinical terminology amongst various other concerns. These concerns weren't necessary, as the University of Glasgow provides their undergraduate psychology students with exceptional experience in statistics and a clinical terminology is much easier to get to grips with than I first thought. But nevertheless, the concerns were understandable. Being a first-generation student and starting university at a relatively young age, I had no idea what to expect from an undergraduate degree or postgraduate education, and the unknown was unnerving. I also find research a very daunting career path as it's so competitive, and although it's rewarding, can at times be draining and disheartening. I was often concerned that I wasn't working hard and staying productive at all times, I would fall behind and lessen my chances of a successful career in research. I think that this fear and the feeling of anxiety that comes with imposter syndrome is something that people tend to avoid talking about. For a long time, I didn't talk about the feelings I was experiencing. I didn't want others to know that I didn't believe I was deserving of my success so far. I truly believed it was down to luck, but didn't want this to be obvious to other people. As it turns out, Lots of other people feel this way, and it's nothing to be ashamed of. Having spoken to many of my peers throughout my undergraduate and now postgraduate degree, a lot of us seem to experience similar feelings. University can be a very competitive environment, and this pressure to compete and do well leads to many students feeling inadequate. I found it hard to watch my peers achieving good grades if I had been disappointed by mine, and although I tend to watch study tube videos to motivate me while studying, they often left me feeling like I wasn't achieving much, as the standards they set in terms of coping with university and daily life can be so high. Having spoken to fellow students on my master's degree, it's clear that none of us are really the perfect student, and I don't actually know if that exists or is achievable. It's an image we all strive for, but as a group, we face many of the same struggles. These include coping with the workload in front of us, worrying that we aren't learning enough content or reading enough extra material, struggling to prepare for our exams and finishing assignments on time, while also thinking about where we might want to go and what we might want to do after this master's degree. I know that I don't always feel capable of handling all of these things, but I'm learning to be okay with this because so many other people are in the same boat. I think it's important to know that imposter syndrome is nothing to be ashamed of, and being honest with yourself and others can be a great feeling. I feel so much better when I can share my worries with other people, and I often feel that if I have a concern, someone else is likely to be thinking the same thing. 
I try to give myself more credit for what I've achieved, as university isn't easy and every one of us will probably doubt ourselves at some point. If you're struggling with imposter syndrome, feel like a fraud, or are battling perfectionism, particularly as a graduate student, please know that you're not alone. Give yourself a high five every now and then, even for the little things and the small achievements. Be kind to yourself and take care of yourself. As always, thanks for tuning in and be sure to catch my next blog next month and my upcoming Week in the Life of a Student in Lockdown blog coming later this month. Below are some links to more information and support should you need it. Thanks, Morgan. That's it. That's the last of our narrated blogs from 2020. This was a new idea that we came up with back in around April, May time. So not all of our blogs came with narrations this year. However, they will going forwards. If you'd like, we also have a very specific blog podcast stream. So you can access these via our website in the traditional printed format with the narrations in the website as well. Or if you go look for Dementia Researcher Blogs podcast, we release these as mini blogs every time they come out. We'll also contribute to do these roundups once in a while when we get chance. I would like to take this opportunity to thank everybody who's written blogs and contributed to our website in all its various shapes and forms through the blogs and podcasts over the last year. It really is your contributions that make our website as great as it is. So thank you very much and we hope that you will continue to, to share your thoughts and support others through the blog and the podcast and our webinars in 2021. If you're listening and you'd like to also contribute, we're always looking for more people. So please do drop us a line using the Contact Us page on our website. I think that's the end of today. I would like to thank everybody for listening and wish you all a happy new year and, and a great 2021. Brought to you by DementiaResearcher.nihr.ac.uk in association with Alzheimer's Research UK and Alzheimer's Society. Supporting early career dementia researchers across the world.